Welcome to episode 20 of the Men Who Save Football, the Dundalk FC fancast. It's a post-match reaction to our 2-0 win against Cork City in Turner's Cross. Guys, in previous years, that would be a big, big result. It was a big, big result as regards to league table. Puts us back in third position uh, with two games, two crucial games to come this weekend. What did you make of Tuesday night's action? Well, first of all, I think the, the result was critical. Uh, I think to, to, to get the three points... Uh, was was massive. I think as it was in ways a quite a frustrating game at times. Um, we were very comfortable on the ball. We were passing it about. Um, shades of the Dundalk of old in in some of our play. Um, and but as the game went on, uh, just the, the the lack of that opening goal started to get more and more frustrating. Um, so it was to me it was strange because parts of it I thought were very positive, just how comfortable on the ball we were. Now we were playing uh, a team at the bottom of the table, so uh, that shouldn't be surprising. But Dundalk recently, I mean, our results since we've come back uh, um, since the break have been uh, have not been great. But I thought we were we played very well, but just that final third um, crosses into the box were not great. Um, Hoban was not really getting the uh, service that he needed in the first half. And as the game went on, I think we were talking about it at the time, and it was just looking more and more, uh, a nil-nil was just looming, and it just looked inevitable. Um, so, yeah, it was strange for me, because I thought there was, there was a lot of positives in it, uh, but it was very frustrating. But then, you know, in the end, uh, got the two goals pretty late, and... Uh, I think the I think the result was fair. To be honest with you, I think uh, I don't think anyone could complain about the, the three points. But what was more important than anything was that we got those points because they're absolutely crucial. Yeah, I think we laboured throughout a lot of the game. Uh, Filippo, I think, was was said he, afterwards he was quite pleased with the performance with the, the the technical kind of play that was on show. He was you know probably very pleased with the way that we knocked the ball around at the back. Uh, and kind of made some some inroads down the wings. But I think, as Rory pointed out, we really laboured in the final third. Uh, some of the, the attempts to deliver the ball into the box were really, really poor. Um, players who, you know, in seasons gone by, you would rely on for really quality delivery, uh, seemed to be struggling to be able to produce a cross that wasn't, you know, a daisy cutter uh, and was easily kind of cleared by the, the Cork defence. So... I think overall, yes, we, we definitely deserve the win, but you would be worried about our cutting edge in the, the final third, particularly. Cork did set themselves up uh, in, a, in a very defensive formation. It seemed to be that a point would have been what they were seeking from that game. And it did seem to be working because Dundalk moved the ball over and back in front of these massed ranks of essentially a back 10. And it took us a long time to actually make that breakthrough and when it did arrive it was really through a goalkeeping error which gifted us the uh, gifted us the, the first goal but as you say we've now mentioned a couple of times our set pieces don't seem to be nearly as effective as they have been in seasons past and if you look at that Dummigan cross for the goalkeeping error it's sort of ballooned up into the air and comes down more or less exactly it's favoring the keeper all the way he really should have had a handy catch there but instead Greg Sloggett makes a challenge. Often that's sort of given as a free out, but it drops to Hoban, Hoban puts it in, and suddenly the game is changed in that moment. But I suppose there would have been some nervous Dundalk spectators seeing us go the entire first half, then past 60 minutes, then past 70 minutes without making that breakthrough. What do you think it is about you know that cutting edge that used to be there in previous seasons, which seems to be a little bit more blunt in, in the current one? Well, I think one of the interesting things is that the second goal was was a really nice goal, and the the movement. I think was it Shields did the the pass in, um, and who got the assist? Um, Gannon. Gannon. But Shields' pass to Gannon was uh, cut straight through, and then Gannon crossed it in, and you know across the kind of that previously in the game, as Martin had said, hadn't been working. So the second goal was like uh, vintage Dundalk stuff. Um, and I think that kind of highlighted generally what I'm missing, because it came from Shields, who you know, excellent player, but we're not getting enough of that. And, you know, we have lost some players in the middle of the field um, who, you know, you know, people like McGrath or Benson, who, who, who would have contributed things like that. So 
and maybe we haven't replaced him. So I think that, you know, we were talking about balls coming in from the wings not being effective. But another thing which has been missing from Dundalk's play is the, you know, cutting pass through the middle. Shields, Shields did last night. Um, so I think we're definitely missing something like that. Uh, but it's that final third pass, whether it's coming from the wings or through the middle, we're definitely blunt in that, in that final third. And I think the second goal, in a weird way, highlighted that because it was a throwback to uh, what, what, we, what we used to be used to. We have faced a couple of teams who have defended really, really deep against us in the, the past two games, like both Finn Harps and Cork, for obvious reasons, struggling at the, the bottom of the table. Uh, I think Ken mentioned it was like a back 10 last night, uh, and it, it wasn't far across that. Like They had you know 10 men slung across the 18-yard the line and were just defending for their lives for, for a lot of the game. And it is very hard for a team to break that down. But we did create some opportunities to get good balls into the box. Uh, I think there was a, a big dispute over a, a penalty that I think Nathan Adua crossed it in from the right. There was a suspicion that Alan Bennett might have handballed it. But even that was, you know, maybe a yard off the ground when it was moving. Uh, there was plenty of Michael Duffy crosses where, again, really struggled to get any kind of loft on it. Like didn't favour the, the attacking players at all. Uh, we had a lot of corners, they were overhit, things like that. So even though the opposition you know, were making it especially difficult to, to break them down, when the chances did emerge, we didn't do a great job of, of capitalising on them either. Uh, the one exception being that second goal, like the through ball from Kerr Shields was amazing. Run from Gannon was perfect. His ball across for Huben, like spot on. Uh, you thought that maybe that was us finally getting things together and the floodgates would really open at that stage. But I don't know, that was... Late enough of the game, maybe uh, I think it, it kind of petered out a little bit after that. It was really a magical moment. I mean, you know, Chris, to me, I know that this has been a very funny season, but I think in some ways, I know Chris has been a fan favourite now for several seasons, but I, I think his level of consistency in what has been a difficult season, it is in some ways, you know, one of his one of his best for us. And I thought last Tuesday he was again magnificent, as he's been in the European campaign, uh, particularly out in Moldova. But I suppose it's a side to his game which is, is developing still. I mean, we were familiar with Chris as breaking up the opposition's attacks, as being neat and tidy um, in the anchorman role, maintaining possession, getting the sort of attacks going. But that pass last night was something, I suppose, that he doesn't often get advanced enough to have the opportunity to do. And it was just an absolutely majestic, perfectly weighted ball one touch then from Gannon. And it just goes to show that when we did quicken the pace that Cork could be got at. But I suppose the, the other side, the contrast to that was for long periods of the game, although we were in possession, we seemed to move the ball at something just too leisurely of a pace. And Cork were pretty much able to you know, shuffle across from one side of the field to the other and narrow down the opportunities for Dundalk to go forward. And in that way, I think even Patrick Hoban said it in his post-match interview that it was quite a frustrating game for long periods. But the result was paramount and it puts a very different complexion on the table. We're now back in third place, but presumably we'll be facing a much tougher test over the weekend when we face Derry City on Monday night, but first of all, Bohemians. Yeah, I think, I mean, at the end of each podcast, you know, we look forward to the next games and you start talking about predictions. And I think predictions this season are out the window. I I, I, I keep saying this, that I, I couldn't tell you what I think is going to happen. I think Friday night's going to be really tough. Um, because I know it, it's, 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 it's hard to take too much away when you're playing the bottom teams. Um, but I would say that I do think that even though we laboured a bit, I saw enough uh, against Cork that would give me a bit of hope. The the movement of the ball. Um, I thought Adua had another excellent game. I think he's to me he's really growing in stature. Um, I wasn't too impressed with him at first, but I think uh, he's putting in a shift. I thought I, I, I agree. I think Shields um, Shields had a great game, and he's. I mean, re- recently he's been always the best player in in on, on the park. So, um, but we're we're going to be playing much more. Uh, obviously Cork defended um, and never really really threatened us too much I mean that, I don't think if it was going to be nil-nil or we were going to win I don't think it was going to go the other way but Bows are going to be much more of a threat um, uh, So and then Derry as well on top of that so it's, it's going to be a really tough weekend 
I think a very different challenge uh, on Friday night against Bohemians because I don't imagine they will sit as deep as, as Cork did. We can expect them to be you know, much more of an attacking outfit during the game, which to some degree might work in our favour if we're not trying to break down, you know, as I said, 10 men behind the ball. Uh, we might be able to expose them a little bit more with, with our attacking talent. But at the same time, we'll have to defend much better. I think we'll have to defend you know, collectively very well as a team to, to keep them at bay. And obviously, they're a team at the moment who are in flying form and are going to be coming to Oriel with a lot of confidence. Um, at the same time, I think I wouldn't fear them that much. Like I, I think both are a capable team. But I think looking at our squad, we've got the, the players to take them on fairly fairly easily too. So I think it's just going to be a really good game. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it and, uh, and seeing which way it goes. Would you expect after the sort of misfiring of the team against Shamrock Rovers and Finn Harps, would you expect a lot less squad rotation from Friday night? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we mentioned this on a previous podcast that the, I think this, the squad rotation has been a problem. Because every time we see the team sheet, you know, we dropped into the WhatsApp and everyone's like trying to work out where people are playing. That's always the game. Like, uh, <laughs> where's Mentley going to go? Something like this, you know. Um, I would hope that the performance against Cork, and if Filippo was happy with it, that he might stick with... Because uh, we, we're starting to see some names come back to the squad as well and some players cement themselves. So I would hope, yeah, stick with it. I'm hoping to see maybe Daryl Leahy return at left back as well after his uh, adventure with the, the under 21s because well Cameron Dummigan I think has done a, a reasonably good job when he's come in we definitely look like we have a better balance uh, with somebody who's you know naturally left-footed and gets up and down that wing a little bit more to, to support Michael Duffy uh, at the same time I do think we'll probably see some rotation I mean the squad is just so big that it's hard to imagine that he's going to send out the same 11 two games in a row uh, even if everybody is is fit and well, especially given that we have Derry coming the, the following Monday, uh, not too long afterwards. And so I think he will use the squad a bit, but I think my hope is that you'll see, you know, maybe two, maybe three people, you know, coming in and out rather than wholesale changes, as we saw the last time. And that will help us, you know, kind of build a, a little bit of momentum. Rory mentioned that he was um, quite impressed by Nathan Adua. You've sort of been a fan of his, Martin, I think since he's arrived at the club. I thought he had his best game for us so far against Cork. Do you think he has a good shout to nail down that right-hand side berth? Because it seems to be up for grabs and you're, you're just kind of hoping that either Kolovich or maybe Nathan or even John Mountney can make it their own with, with a, a run of form there. Do you think Nathan has a chance of doing that? Yeah, I think the, the right side of midfield is a, a bit of a funny one because we've got Three players, I think, who are really in contention for, for that place. There's Adua, there's Cholovich, there's uh, Daniel Kelly. And I think all of them offer something like completely different to the, the others. So Daniel Kelly, like really strong and direct running at people uh, and a very good finisher too, like a, a great goals to games record for us. Uh, Cholovich, on the other hand, I think like a, a very sweet left foot, but he looks a bit, you know, kind of reliant on it at times that, you know, defenders, I think, have started to work out that, they can show him onto his right foot and uh, he's, he's nowhere near as confident on that side. And then you've got Adua, who I think is also pretty good at, you know, running at people and taking them on, uh, but is just kind of full of the odd kind of trick and stuff like that. You know, is it, if there's a downside to his game, he's a bit of a showboat, you know, which I think is going to make him an easy target when things go wrong. You know, when, you know, throws in one or two too many step overs and stumbles out of play, like that's going to be a, a situation where people get on his back. But I think his all-round game, like he looks uh, like he's a, a really good first touch, keeps the ball well, uh, is able to bring other people into play, links up well with his his right back, whoever's playing alongside him, and um, I think I've been pretty impressed with his his work rate around the field. Again, I think one of those players who has a a kind of lazy-looking gait uh, to the the way that he ambles around the pitch. But actually, I think if you look at the way he's played over the the course of a few games does work very hard to, to track back, to help out his fullback, to put in tackles and things like that. And so it's a bit of a funny one. Like he doesn't naturally look like one of those players, but at the same time, like he puts in a shift at the time. And uh, I've, I've been quite impressed by that. I think of the, the three, maybe he's in pole position at the moment, but it's really kind of up in the air. Uh, in some ways, it's good to have those options, but at the same time, it would be good for like one of them to nail down that place uh, to at least you know be the, 
the first name of the team sheet for you know 60 minutes. Well, with the amount of football we're going to have in this helter-skelter month of essentially games every 72 hours, there's going to be plenty of opportunities, I think, for all the players you've mentioned to, to have a shot at making that position their own. Just on another point, we had a stalwart of our recent years of success, Patrick Oban, pass another milestone on Tuesday night where he equaled Jimmy Hasty's record. Just reflecting on what Pat has given to Dundalk over his time with the club, I mean, how would you rate him as regards uh, in the pantheon of Dundalk strikers of the ages? Well, I think the numbers speak for themselves. You know, uh, I, I get this from my dad, but he always maintained that it was the stats that tell you things. You know, if, if anyone doubted a player, my dad was the first to go straight. He'd always go, he'd walk away and he'd come back with a printed out A4 sheet and he would just, you dig it out. I remember one time a friend made a passing comment about Richie Towell and my dad walked off and came back five minutes later with this matrix of, uh, of numbers and the numbers show it. So I think there's no debate about his position in the Pantheon. He's up there at the very top. Um, interesting as well, he's also the top scorer in the league at the moment ahead of a certain, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, coronated king of the of all football. Uh, I will note that uh, he is the top scorer in the league at the moment as well. Are you referring to the greatest player in the world, Mr. Jack Byrne? I dare not speak his name, uh, but yeah, uh, just saying for all the hype about Mr. Byrne, um, Pa Hoban is 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 the leading goal scorer in the league. Um, and I, I'm okay. That's, you know, maybe being a bit cheeky there, but he is the he's the, the top scorer and. And I think that's something important as well for Dundalk fans to note as well, because as you know, as amazing as Hoban has been, and again, I'm going to say that the, the numbers speak for themselves. I don't think there's a debate about his greatness. But then he's another one that you know sometimes Dundalk fans in the last two years have gotten on his back. Um, but you know, this season under the radar, he has flown, and now he's top scorer, currently top scorer. I think to add to that. He spent quite a long time out of the country as well, where, you know, you get some players who've stuck in the league nonstop uh, and have, you know, banged in the goal season after season, whereas Pat had quite a long break in England before coming back. Uh, obviously, he had an exceptional season that first year when he did come back. Uh, but in the meantime, like, his his all-round game, like, contributes a lot to the team as well. It's not just his goal scoring. Like, he puts in a lot of efforts holding the ball up chasing defenders, uh, doing a lot of work, you know, often kind of thankless kind of work in the, the opposition half with his back to goal. Uh, so it's not just the goals that he's delivering, like he's delivering a lot of value for the rest of the team. But then, you know, as Rory said, the numbers speak for themselves. And he's not old either. Like if he sticks it out for uh, another three, four or five years, there's nothing to, to really stop him from becoming the probably the club's all-time uh, record goal scorer. Uh, and I don't know if he'll really threaten the, the overall league stats, but, you know, he could make some inroads. As you mentioned, I mean, it, it, I thought one of his best performances ever for Dundalk was in Moldova, when, although yep. he, didn't, he didn't score, and nor did he have many goal-scoring chances, I thought he was absolutely Herculean in the amount of work that he got through. And that other side of his game that you mentioned, the ability to hold the ball under extreme pressure, sometimes being harried by two, three defenders. It's quite remarkable. Like when you look at Pat's all-round game, although he makes for a great goal-scoring centre-forward, he seems to have the skill and the ability to hold on to the ball that would also probably make him a, a really classy midfielder as well. But definitely having seen a lot of Dundalk FC centre-forwards who have been part of league-winning sides and topped the goal-scoring charts, I think his, his all-round game, definitely, in my view, probably the best centre-forward we've ever had since I've been watching Dundalk. I think that's a great point, is that his best performance, maybe his best performance this year, he didn't score. And he is top scorer in the league. And, you know, he's, 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 you know, he's powering up towards being our all-time best scorer. He's shattered records in his first season back. And his best performance this year, he didn't score, which goes to show you how well-rounded his game is. I mean, I, yeah, I think ultimately that the facts will speak for themselves. But yeah, add that on top of the numbers and he probably is our best ever striker. I think he's got some interesting competition at the moment from, from David McMillan, who's a man who scored a lot of goals for Dundalk too. And I think David came back, he got a couple of goals against, uh, well, sorry, he got a goal against Cove uh, that kind of got him off the mark again with the club. 
but I think he struggled a bit in the limited amount of game time he's had to you know make any more inroads and you know honestly has missed a couple of chances that I thought were very presentable as well uh, so I would kind of like it if Davey was putting a little bit more pressure on Pat, you know, for putting the ball in the back of the net at the moment. That uh, might give his manager a little something to think about and maybe give Pat a little bit more motivation as well to stick a few more in the back of the net. Although last night's performance would have done his, uh, his chances any harm either. Todd, the other great thing about, about Hoban was that the fact that he pounced on that mistake last night, he was in the exact right position at the exact right time. I mean, it's, you know, these cliches like poacher's goal or fox in the box and all this kind of stuff. But he, you know, that's exactly what you want your your forward to do, to pounce on mistakes like that. And it was just, you know, we could say, yeah, okay, it was, the goal was gifted to us, but he had to do that job and be there at the exact right time. That doesn't happen by accident. And there isn't too many other centre forwards around who have been that prolific. Like some positions in the league, there there's a kind of a, a dirt of centre forwards around. You'll see, if you look at the goal scoring charts, there's a hell of a lot of midfielders and wingers in there. I think a lot of our main rivals would love a player like Pat Hoban. I think that's why the controversy over whether he'd be extending his stay in Oriel Park last year was of such concern to fans because I think we all knew that many of our rivals would be very, very keen in his signature if that was not, not acquired by Dundalk. So I think it was a big relief to everybody that Pat stayed on at the club and was happy to do so and has delivered the goods and continues to do so. But that being said, I'm sure David McMillan will be getting a start in one of those games over the weekend. And so if he was to get minutes and hit form, we will be needing to pair them in the, in the month that we're about to face. Yeah, it's kind of a, a nice headache to have, I guess. Um, I know McMillan maybe hasn't been firing on all cylinders, but to say that you have to rest Pat Hoban, because we, we will have to rest him, but to know you've got Dave McMillan as the replacement, because I think definitely we'll see that this weekend. Um, but we all know what uh, what David's capable of. So, you know, we were a bit worried about rotation and do we have the strength to get us through this insane month which is coming up. But to save dress Pat Hoban and bring in Dave McMillan, you know, isn't the most, you know, depressing idea. I suppose looking forward then to Europe, we're just over a week away from our first group stage game in the Europa League against Malda. After some controversy, this is going to be taking place in Tala due to the IRFU requiring the Aviva Stadium for kicking practice. And this seemed to ignite something of an outburst from Dundalk FC chairman Bill Holsizer. What did you make of the, shall we call it, the Windsor Park controversy? Uh, I think it was... All around an unfortunate situation. First of all, I would say that IRFU, I mean, to hold the stadium for kicking practice is just insanity. I don't think they've, you know, they've blotted their copybook, but they didn't have a nice copybook of me anyway. I uh, wouldn't have been their biggest fan. Um, I thought that was kind of, that, that seemed a bit uh, weird. Now, there is, uh, you know, if you want to look at a current, you know, a narrative was that the IRFU had a bone to pick with Dundalk FC and particularly our manager ahead of this, which is why they stuck to their guns on the kicking practice. So, you know, the talk is that over the course of the year, our chairman has said some things, inflammatory things about the IRFU, which is maybe why they weren't willing to budge on it. So it then became this tit-for-tat war. But I think his statements and his comments, um, especially the one about Tala Stadium as well, I thought was really unhelpful. Uh, about, you know, the Arsenal game being held there and do you want it there and all this kind of stuff. Because, I mean, that stadium has, uh, you know, served us really well. Um, uh, we've amazing memories in that place. Um, and to talk it down like that, uh, I don't think was helpful. Um, I don't think anything he says is helpful, to be honest with you. Uh, but I think, you yeah, know, his statements, um, the, the floating of Windsor Park, you know, even in the current situation, you know, uh, putting it up uh, technically across a border in a time when crossing borders and stuff like this, it probably isn't the wisest thing. He made some also ill-advised comments about uh, the UK um, that maybe only someone from America could make. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think it was a bit farcical and it gave people a lot of fuel to pounce on him. Uh, I, I, in particular, I thought his comments about 
Tala were the, probably the most unhelpful ones. Um, and just show a, a kind of an ignorance of the situation. Um, and highlighted the fact, which a lot of fan, other fans throughout us, is that why, why are we looking for other stadiums? Um, because our stadium isn't good enough. So they came in on a crest a few years ago, all this money, all these plans. We know that the training facilities are great. But can he really be complaining about Tala when he's got a crumbling ground you know, of his own? I, I don't know if I, I quite agree with that argument because you know there's only one other club in the country who probably has that class of a stadium that they can use for, for this kind of fixture. Uh, and it's not even their stadium, they rent it. And I think if it was any other regional club, if it was Waterford or Galway or Limerick or something like that, like, we would all be in the same boat uh, in this case of having to find another ground to use for it. So, you know, I don't think the fact that the dog don't have a suitable ground is, uh, what would we say, uh, I don't think it's specific to the dog. I don't think it's no, a problem. No, uh, but I, th I think I should clarify that should he be as inflammatory uh, when that's that's well, that's my point. I mean, we all need. I mean, other than Shamrock Rovers, we all need to would need to borrow grounds at this stage. But uh, should he be as bombastic? Well, I, I would say there's two ways to to look at the the situation. So, you know, from from Bill's perspective, playing devil's advocate here, uh, he says the club now needs to make two different grounds ready. You know, for the the standard required by UEFA uh, for for these matches at some substantial cost to the club, like he talked about, you know, 50, 60,000 euros being at stake, which, as he rightly pointed out, could well be spent on, you know, another player uh, or somebody's wages at the club and making the team more successful. Uh, but in some ways, I think that's a bit of an indictment of his own behaviour. Like, if you look at this from the other perspective, uh, the reason that we're having to spend this money to upgrade two grounds is because Bill's comments have upset the IRFU in the past and they won't give us the Aviva Stadium that are holding it for their kicking practice instead. So if anything, it's really a damning indictment of Bill's own behaviour in the past. And if anybody is really costing us that money, it's Bill and Bob. And maybe you should look a little bit closer to home when he's looking for somebody to, to blame for that particular financial outlay. It does also reopen the question of the future of Oriel Park. Because if we go back to previous generations of Dundalk fans, there was a real moment of pride when the town was able to host its first European game. And if you talk to generations older than ours, they will remember having to go off and make the trek to Daly Mount Park, which was the only floodlight equipped stadium in the country for football and having to play your European games there. And of course, I suppose it was a little bit more of an arduous journey in them days, but there was also a certain indignity in not being able to host it yourself. And that wasn't the case for many years because when we were kind of coming up, Oriel Park could host European games and we had wonderful midweek nights under lights with full houses against Ajax and Red Star Belgrade and teams of that caliber. But um, with the upping of standards and the upping of requirements, we suddenly find ourselves sort of going back in time and needing other people's stadiums. Now, um, it seemed to me a situation whereby Bill sees this as a right rather than as something of a indulgence from the people who actually control these grounds because it does seem that the FAI they are the junior partner in the Aviva Stadium like staggeringly that stadium which they are so heavily indebted for and paying off will eventually revert to the entire ownership of the IRFU now that's to me a jaw-dropping deal I cannot understand why the FAI is paying a mortgage on something that eventually will be somebody else's property. That just baffles me. But then again, it is an insight into the type of deal that was done by the FAI in years not too distant. But nonetheless, that's something of a side issue. But the fact is that Irish football really only has, is, it, ha, it doesn't truly have a home of its own. It's a junior partner in the Viva Stadium. And, Obviously, it wasn't booked, and it's booked by the IRFU, and they're sticking to their guns, and they're not inclined to facilitate us. So it seems to be a case that, you know, in some, as Martin said, you can look at this from two perspectives. You know, you can look at how the statements by the chairman are made. And in one light, if you're being charitable, you can say, well, this is a, a sort of a forthright, aggressive style whereby he essentially tries to 
you know, browbeat people into giving him what he wants. And some people think that's a legitimate way to conduct your business. But unfortunately, the re reality is we have very little leverage here. We don't have control of the Aviva Stadium. So we need the acquiescence of the IRFU and the FAI to access it. That's just a fact. We also need the cooperation of South Dublin County Council and the availability of their facility to be able to host the game at all. And if they're not inclined to facilitate us or unable to facilitate us, the next stop is Limerick, which is pretty, pretty distant from Dundalk. So whereas I think Tala and the Aviva Stadium are feasible, you know, if we, if we alienate the people who control access to those stadiums, it could leave us basically going down the motorway all the way to Tillman Park. Now, I never thought the Windsor Park idea was likely because UEFA are historically averse to facilitating games being played outside the jurisdiction of the association that's hosting the game. So it was always unlikely that we would be in Windsor Park and it was even more unlikely given the COVID situation and an impending lockdown in the north. So once again, it seems to have been, and I think Daniel McDonald referred to, you know, a certain style of of talking from our chairman, which is sort of thinking out loud, but this is not only thinking out loud, perhaps half formed or not fully formed opinions. This seemed to go directly into the mainstream media. And once again, make us perhaps not exactly, it'd be overstating it to say it made us an object of ridicule, but it was certainly was not perhaps portraying the club as the steadiest of ships. Not at all. And I think it undid some of the, I think obviously we all know after Vinnie Perth um, was fired and then the kind of the chaos that came out after that and the stories about, you know, which, you know, in, in Dan's article, which kind of lifted the lid on the kind of chaotic stuff that had kind of died down because the European story had diverted attention back to positive stuff. Bill seemed to fade into the distance a little bit and it, you know, it seemed as though the, uh, the reins were put on him. It seemed as though Filippo was doing his own team selection because it seemed like, you know, it didn't feel like it was these more erratic choices that we'd heard about on the back phone into the dugout uh, were being made. It seemed as though stuff was being settled and the European stuff was this bright spot on what has not been a great season, let's face it. We were struggling to get into third. But... um. It just seems that it, that has pulled up the, the the rug again in a way, and it has. I mean, the 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 was the chatter on Twitter is back to this farcical situation. Look at Dundalk, look at their, you know, look at their kind of out of control chairman and the stuff he says, and it seems to have cycled straight back to that the era, the time around the Independent article, um, and yeah, not a steady ship. Who's running the show? Why are they doing this? Blah blah blah. Um, definitely unhelpful. I will say one thing on that, though. I do think that, again, the, the IRFU are also a part of playing this, and I think it is crazy that you know that uh, that, that they're sticking to their guns over a, a practice session uh, over something which is really important. It just shows absolute no solidarity at all. Um, uh, and you know, but why should I expect anything more from them? I suppose turning to our own uh, facilities. Peak Six did come in and they said initially, very explicitly, they were up front. They said, we'll be investing in the team. We won't be investing in the infrastructure. And that was up front. Nobody, nobody made any promises to, to yep. in any other direction. Given that we've now qualified for the Europa League group stages against all the odds and with all the commotion that, you know, and all the disruption of COVID this year, um, and there will be another payday of several millions is it now time for Peak Six to reconsider that? I mean, this is a fund, or they sit on top of a fund of 23 billion, we're told. Now, like I say, stadiums, the way they usually get built, it's a combination of local authority money, uh, sports association money, money from the Department of Sport. I, I'm curious, n nothing seems to have emerged from them as regards a concrete, robust, visible progress to getting all those various agencies in alignment and getting their own money on the table. Because ultimately, you know, I think we'd all agree, and this is the reason I'm probably more 
kindly inclined to peak six than you are. I think very much, if you look around the league, what it's missing is capital investment. Most of our stadiums are crumbling wrecks with the single exception, perhaps, of Tallis Stadium. And I don't mean to disrespect any club there, but very few clubs are in a, have a modern fit-for-purpose stadium like the ones that you would see on the continent. And we simply, as a sport, and particularly with the recent conduct of the FAI, we don't really have much credibility politically right now. So it makes it all the more difficult to access government support. But is it about time Peak 6 formulated and unveiled a plan for some sort of development at Oriel Park, be it five years down the line or 10 years down the line and contingent on state support to give us some sort of vision for the future? Because I think, you know, there's a certain aspect of this where, you know, foaming at the mouth of the IRFU and saying that Tala isn't good enough for us, it does ring hollow when Oriel is in the state it's in and doesn't really show much sign of improvement? I think you'd probably have to look at what Peak 6 considered the, the business proposition for, for that deal. That even a, a relatively modestly sized stadium is going to cost a lot of money. And you have to wonder whether the, the amount of money that the club is going to lose in terms of paying for the, the various stadiums that we've already talked about to be made ready for European competition, if that's going to be substantial enough that it would make business sense to consider investing significantly in Oriel Park or you know some nearby facility uh, as an alternative. And also, I think, like you mentioned politically, what the situation is like at the moment, I think if you look around at the various partnerships that would be needed to get something like that off the ground, a lot of those partnerships at the moment look unreliable. So the FAI doesn't look like a particularly reliable partner in that kind of venture at the moment. Uh, Louth County Council have never seemed particularly enthusiastic uh, about getting involved in, in any respect, although it's, it's difficult to tell what's said behind closed doors, but um, it doesn't seem to have been a lot of enthusiasm uh, for anything soccer related in the dog. Uh, and then central government at the same time is splashing the cash around at the moment as part of a major emergency but you'd have to imagine that the press strings are going to tighten considerably uh, after that is over. So I don't know if the landscape looks very promising from that respect. And I think I'm, I'm managing my expectations as a result. Yeah, I think there's, first of all, there's a really good point there, which is Pixx are going to look at this from a business point of view. Now, Ken, you asked, should they? They should, you know. Um, but I think Martin has a, you know, makes a, raises a very good point there, which is if they can make three million of getting into the Europa League group stages without doing up Oriel Park, then maybe this can keep rolling. Now, okay, it's at the moment, gate receipts aren't an issue because they can't get into the stadiums anyway. Um, if they want to keep this rolling concern getting into Europe, and let's face it, I, I kind of we kind of this season has kind of maybe proved their model right because they did it. They, they they said group stages was their plan and. You know, in, in, in mad circumstances, they've done it. Going forward, yeah, if they if they feel they can get away with renting other stadiums, uh, it's not part of the, if, if it's not going to make them money, then maybe that's the, um, uh, that, that's an interesting point. The other thing as well is for all these partnerships, the FEI, local government, Peak 6, there is also the particular situation of Oriel Park. And, you know, the fact that they, I mean, the club don't own it, I think is also the big X factor here. Because who's going to want to put money into a ground which ultimately none of those partners own? I mean, will the government put money into a ground which is on land which the club don't own? Is Peak 6 willing to put money into that? So I think the Oriel Park situation, the, the particularities of the ownership of Oriel Park is, is, is another factor. And then I think then moving away from Oriel Park is such you know a, a difficult decision to make um that that also has to be considered but the first thing for this is our peak six or the government or anyone willing to put money into it uh, i think ken mentioned at the outset as well the, the the sense of pride that accompanied the town being able to host games in the past for big european nights and i think if there's one attribute that peak six probably don't have it's that sense of pride in the town 
that really kind of drives that that kind of behavior maybe against some of the other rational concerns that uh, we've spoken about and I think if the club was owned by somebody local uh, when maybe less of a, a case this season when there's not going to be fans in the ground anyway but the idea of being able to host those games locally to have visiting fans and dignitaries and media and all sorts come to the town and you know get to experience Dundalk in all its glory you know on, on those kind of nights is so fantastic compared to being dragged down the motorway to, to Tallaght or somewhere like that where the town doesn't reap any of the economic benefit of these games being held locally and then the fans have to put up with you know arduous travel to and from the games and you know not being able to celebrate in style after the the final whistle and that kind of thing um yeah i think that is is sort of missing from the the management of the club at the moment mm-hmm. and i think that is the thing that fans feel the most and i don't know if that is well represented by the the board i mean that i that, that's a great point and that lack of pride also extends to the fact that I, I do believe at one stage they floated the idea of Lansdowne Road, the Aviva, being our home stadium. Um, you know, not just for European games. I do believe, Bill, at one stage, you know, the, thinking out loud, not only would we not just have European games there, but being dragged down the motorway on a Friday night to, you know, play Finn Harps uh, at one stage. So that's, I think that, that, that backs up your point, that lack of connection with the locality, um, which... Not to, you know, again, I know I, I in particular pick on them quite a bit, but probably does stem from the fact that they're not from here. I mean, they're not even based here. So they have no concept of... Plus, they also come from this um, uh, American sports background with franchises and up and sticks and moving. I just don't think they get the concept at all. Um, and Ireland is probably so small to them that, you know, Lansdowne Road is probably an, an outskirts stadium uh, in an American city. Oh, like, I mean, that, that is an interesting point because I think most football fans in this, this part of the world, when, when they first encounter stories like the LA Dodgers used to be the Brooklyn Dodgers and then they upped and left and that this wasn't a one-off, this is a, a regular thing and American sports franchises sort of are lured away from their current home by rival cities with offers of brand new sparkling stadia. I mean, to us, that's a different world because... You know, the thing about football is the name of your club tends to be the place where it's from, generally speaking. And you can't take Manchester United and move it to Birmingham and call it Birmingham United and expect it to just pick up where it left off. And um, I, th- I think that's given that the American sporting environment is quite different. That's probably probably not quite as obvious to our current owners. But, you know, the, the notion that Dundalk could be moved to Ringsend or go down to Tralee and become the Tralee Lily Whites and suddenly we're, we're, we're like the LA Dodgers. Uh, it, it just, it, it's, it's, you know, Dundalk fans will, will roll their eyes at that. It's just not really a feasible notion, particularly not in a, in a country of this size with, with a fan base of the size that we have. So, I mean, we're not a franchise and the franchise logic doesn't apply here. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, this is where, you know, blue sky thinking perhaps falls flat on its face. But I think to bring us back to, to where we began, I mean, we had that moment of pride where basically essentially a town-wide a town-wide um, bucket collection combined with, I think it was a friendly against Nottingham Forest, raised the money to erect the floodlights, which allowed us to host European games. And that was the requirement. And I do remember people of that generation speaking um, of that moment as almost a form of independence that we now no longer had to go cap in hand. We were of a genuinely equal stature with clubs from the capital. And yet here we are, you know, half a century further down the line, and we seem to have gone backwards as not being able to host. Um, so I, I know it is easy to demand of other people that they spend their money, and that, that's not exactly what we're doing here. But I do think the days when we can bemoan the unavailability of other people's facilities is not really, it's not really a credible argument. We have got to get ourselves organized. We have got to sound out what the FAI, the government, and the local authority, none of which I think are lavish with money to throw around right now, 
what they can do for us in the longer term and what Peak 6 is willing to do to basically restore a situation where Dundalk FC don't have to go somewhere else to play the games that they say are the ambition for us to be playing every year. Because on one of the other League of Ireland podcasts, so the, the, one of the guests was Robbie Lyle, who does the Arsenal Fan TV. And he was talking with great enthusiasm about not knowing anything about Dundalk, but looking for, uh, regretting not being able to make the trip here and talking about how great it would have been and how thousands of fans would have come. And then suddenly he was told by the host, oh, well, it's actually not in Dundalk, it's in, it's in Dublin. So is this going to be the case on an ongoing basis? Are fans kind of who draw Dundalk only going to get to see Dublin, only going to fly into Dublin Airport and see the Aviva Stadium and spend their money in Dublin? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Didn't I mean, we have, didn't a set of fans in 2016 end up in Dundalk on the day of a game when, was when we Tala. were down in Tala? Yeah. And I suppose that's a, another separate point. I mean, with all this toing and froing, is it the Aviva? Is it Tala? Is it, is it Windsor Park? I mean, if you were Malda looking at all this, trying to book hotels and flights, you're probably wondering, what, it, what exact, what outfit are we going to play here? Because it's not really normal behavior for a club with serious aspirations to play in Europe. I mean, having to go somewhere else, you know, I think we can tolerate it for a while. And, you know, there's, but the, despite the certain indignity of not having a home fit to host an event like this, we can tolerate it, but the addition of sort of the commotion that was about it, I don't think it really reflects all that well on the club. I think that's the final point on it, which is that we all know that when Europe rolls around and we have to go to Tala, that that's not an ideal situation. I mean, everyone knows that we want to be having these games at home. But I think this year, the problem was the chairman bemoaning the other stadiums in this situation shines the light harder than ever on our own situation. We all know we have to rent grounds at the moment. We all know it's going to be very hard for us to get a stadium. But you should be a bit humble about it and not be shooting off your mouth at the people who give you the stadiums. I find it hard to believe that the the stadium situation will change like meaningfully for either the dog or anybody else until the league as a whole kind of sorts itself out a bit. Mm. That Until we have a, a TV deal that makes sense until we have a sponsorship deal that makes sense, until the league is run by a group of clubs acting in concert who can make agreements together uh, in a way that makes sense, then I don't think the situation will improve markedly. Like if, if all of that did happen and the league as a whole was on a much sounder financial footing, I think maybe that kind of thing would, would start to seem like more of a genuine possibility. So do you think Tala Stadium is going to be the exception rather than the rule for the medium term, at least? I, I would say so. As regards club structures, another story circulated in recent weeks about the possibility of the appointment of a director of football. Now, it seems as if the manager role is sort of almost disappearing. Um, Filippo is being referred to as a head coach. We know that a manager, generally speaking, has to do certain things. There's all the stuff associated with the dressing room, like training, discipline, laying out the cones, working on set pieces, all that day-to-day stuff, uh, fitness, and, of course, the motivation of individual players, looking after them from a psychological point of view. And I suppose you could call that the domain of, of a coach or a head coach. But uh, a manager then will usually add to those duties with player recruitment, player retention, negotiating contracts. Sometimes the finances of that is handled by a particular director or maybe the general manager in concert with the manager. But the appointment of a director of football would seem to take some of the traditional managerial responsibilities and make them somebody else's. So it could be that Filippo is essentially doing the dressing room work but player recruitment and retention would perhaps become somebody else's responsibility. Now, I suppose some people have been talking about that. I think we mentioned it ourselves, that it would be good to have a buffer between Bill and the dressing room, given all that went on in, I suppose, June and July. Um, how do you guys feel about essentially the managerial role sort of disappearing in the Dock FC and becoming two roles, one head coach, one director of football? Do you think that's going to work? 
I'm worried now that I was the one who floated this. <laughs> it's getting some traction. I'm worried I'm going to be responsible for whatever debacle unfolds. Uh, I, I think in general, I was in favour of it because of Filippo's limited experience with the League of Ireland uh, and with Irish players who might be in and around the league or, or returning from abroad. And so I thought it might make sense to have somebody who is available to tackle player recruitment from that perspective. But I think one of the, the key parts to that role is that a director of football and the head coach have to act in concert. It can't be somebody who's bringing in uh, a selection of players that they like on their, their own kind of behalf that the, the coach then doesn't appreciate or doesn't want in his team because that is going to end up in, well, I, I don't want to say we, we haven't been immune to that kind of thing already, but we certainly don't need any more of it, uh, I think, in the, the club. It has to be a, a selection of players that the, the coach wants to have for one reason or another. But I think even in the recent past and going back as far as last season, maybe even the season before, that there were clearly a number of contract issues that began to kind of overshadow the, the general gossip around the club. And there was talk of like various people being involved in those negotiations, not just the manager at the time, Vinnie Perth, but also um, I think a, a variety of people who were involved in the club at the time. Eventually, Bill Holzheiser was kind of flown in to, you know, kind of smooth things over with Pat Hoobin in particular. And it's clear that that side of the, the club's business required somebody else's attention for a considerable amount of their time. And so formalizing that into uh, a particular role like that's you know done within the club as part of somebody's responsibilities yeah I think that could be a good idea but like I say always with that caveat that the players who were brought in the players who were re retained have to be part of the, the coach's plan yeah I mean I've never really understood the director of football role even at other clubs and stuff like this it's always seemed strange to me um and it's it's I mean, it's never fully defined, and from club to club, it can mean a different thing. It generally, though, I think in European football terms, is mostly about player recruitment, and then the coach is about on-field stuff. That, that seems to be the natural split. Um, and it, to me, it never really fits right, and I'll tell you why, because if you think about I mean, Dundalk's two best ever managers, uh, I mean, Jim McLaughlin and Stephen Kenny, they were these talismanic figures who just seemed to do it all um, and were this kind of center of gravity at, uh, to everything. If you think about Stephen Kenny, the idea of him working with a director of football to me just seems, uh, I, I can't imagine it. And in recent years, he, I mean, he should be the standard that you aimed to, to go to again. Now, I know he's maybe a, a once in a generation type figure, but if we're if we're recruiting a director of football because Filippo isn't up to parts of the job, I think you're putting a bandage on the situation. You're, I think you're approaching the situation from the wrong place. Why don't we get a manager that can do it all? Because if we're getting in a director of football to help Filippo, I would rather that we attempt to find the figure which can replace Stephen Kenny if it's not going to be Vinnie Perth. Um, and in a weird way, I think we've had proto versions of this with last year's contract debacle because we had various figures in the club negotiating contracts, which again, probably, yeah, the financial side of things shouldn't be the manager's concern. But this year, if you had a proto version of it, if you believe the stories that Bill Holzheiser was suggesting or indeed hiring players and then hoisting them onto the manager... Now, as Martin said, you need a good relationship between the two. But the idea that someone else maybe scouts the players, because one of the things about Stephen Kenny and, and Vinnie Perth was this idea that, they, that they, had, they had this encyclopedic knowledge of who was out there in Irish football. And they were able to recruit. I mean, we all know 2013, 2014, they pulled together this ragtag team of, uh, of you know, players who were, who were slipping into being forgotten. And we all know what they did. But that came from that knowledge and that those networks who knew Irish football. Maybe we can get a director of football who can do that for that recruitment purposes. But I would rather we try and find the person who knows the players they want and also wants to coach them. Do you know what I mean? Um, to me, this, I, I've, 
to me, the whole director of football thing has always been strange to me. And it's always, again, to go back to American sports, this idea of the head coach and then the person who recruits the players. And then it's even more extreme in American sports, I believe, because they hire the players and you just give them to the coach and the coach has to, has to manage them. Um, I would rather that we just try to find um, a manager who knows Irish football. Which again, I don't mean as a slight to Filippo, uh, Filippo but um, are we getting a director of football to fix a problem where we should be maybe looking for the manager that's going to push us forward? Well, it seems that time-honoured model of what you're talking about, the manager who knew the league, knew the players, handled recruitment, did the coaching, did the lot. It seems we're now moving away from that under the current model. Because I do think it's significant that Filippo is not even referred to as the manager, that he is the head coach. And we have seen recruitment change. Like under Stephen Kenny and pre-peak six, there was very select recruitment. We didn't sign a great deal of players. We had a quite compact squad. We would sign one or two players every season. And usually they were... The, Stephen Kenny knew what he was doing when it came to recruitment. Uh, if we look at like the year where we brought in Robbie Benson and Patrick McElhenney, there was quality there rather than quantity. It seems now that recruitment can come from a number of sources. And so, some players, by their own admission in their interviews with the club media, have told us that they've come to the club without really the manager seeking or selecting them, that they were the, the choice of the chairman. Um, how would you evaluate recruitment post peak six? I mean, do you think do you think it's been a little bit hit and miss? I think this year it has been, um, and again, I don't, I don't want to start naming names, but actually, yeah, post peak six, we, we it was kind of Dundalk's first uh, foray in a while into foreign recruitment, uh, and we 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 got a bunch of players. Uh, that year and um some of them were let's say you know to be like duds um and we were talking in the last podcast about uh, Adarjan, which who was i think the the real the real bright one uh the, the bright spot that time and we were talking about how we'd like to have him back i mean i think he really showed what you could do if you look abroad um and nicholas vermeland as well um pr- prior to that so but the other times you know uh I think some players have not exactly uh, lit things up. Um, so I think it's been hit and miss. Just to, to elaborate on that, I, I know we, we are big fans of Artisan as regards what he could do, but if you look back at the stats, he didn't actually play all that much for us. And if we take a similar recruitment, uh, Chivadukas, you think, why, we're getting an international player here. This is really stepping up. But it did appear that he was coming to us because he had pretty... Um, consistent injury problems that once again if we look back at how often Chivadukas was able to play um, he did seem to struggle a lot with injury so uh, this seems to be a downside like I mean I I would put it to you without wishing to denigrate any of the other members of the squad in any way probably the players that we've recruited this season that have fitted in seamlessly to the squad and looked most at home and have been probably the best buys have been Sluggett and Leahy who have come from within the league they seem to be you know have no issues as regards fitness they kind of know the nature of the league and they, they seem to be coming part of the team quite comfortably without needing a period of adjustment and perhaps when we look outside, we take more of a risk as regards the the fitness and and the ability to adjust to the requirements of the league here. And you know, there there's it's great to have the ambition to bring in players from leagues which would be rated higher than ours and perhaps players, you know, with an international pedigree. But if we are getting players that can only give you fifty minutes and perhaps miss three games out of four with, because they're struggling with serious injuries. I don't think really that's a strategy which is going to, you know, serve the club perhaps optimally, particularly when you look at Shamrock Rovers recruitment, for example, and Bohemians recruitment, Um, they have recruited within the league. Shamrock Rovers particularly have picked out, you know, a similar type of player. Um, They've picked out, you know, youngish, energetic, mobile, fast midfielders that are comfortable on the ball. And this has given them, 
essentially a team which is quite reminiscent in the way it plays to what we were in 2016 when we had a midfield with exactly those attributes, all comfortable on the ball, all with pace, all with skill. You know, that, that's the type of team they've built. It's a team very much, I think, in our own image, where if we've tried something different, which I think was a legitimate thing to do, to, to try looking outside the league and see if you could bring in players of a higher caliber. But it seems not necessarily to have produced the result. For example, you know, our, our all-conquering, goal-scoring, uh, free-scoring team of 2016, as it gave us our European run, which was unprecedented in, in its performances and results, and also retained the league title. I think that was probably, you know, a, a, a peak of a wave. Now, who knows? Maybe we're on the verge of even greater glories, and let's hope we are. But um, that, that team was noticeably domestically based, you know, the best players in the league brought together with the best coach. So there's perhaps an adjustment or a fine tuning needed in uh, Dundalk's recruitment strategy, whether it be conducted primarily by a director of football or the manager or a combination of both. But I do think we sort of need to look at what worked for us in the past and what seems to be working for our rivals right now. I believe that native Irish players will always be the most consistent source of, of quality players for the team simply because, you know, it's an easier environment for them to, to settle into. Like some of them will already be playing in the league. Uh, others might be returning from abroad, but, you know, they've got their families here and they're, they're quite settled. So I think it's a, an easy sell for them. For players coming from abroad, I think there's more kind of um, adaptation required for them, both in the, the style of the league and adjusting to the, the country and the further afield they come from, maybe the, the more difficult that adjustment is. And I think, as you said, it's a bit more hit and miss in that case. And I don't think that's really a big surprise. I think the club has had some success with, with those foreign recruits. Uh, I think Vermeulen, you could argue, was already playing in the, the league here before he came to the club, but was through, I think, a particular agent uh, who had a, a network in Europe and was interested in bringing players to this country. Um, Sean Murray, I think, has worked out pretty well. And Azurian, that we mentioned, uh, I think, while he hadn't played a lot of games, he was definitely on a trajectory where you could see he had begun to adapt to the league. He was starting to, to make a much bigger impression as, as the weeks went by. And it was just unfortunate when we lost him. Um, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't call the, the experiment in that regard a failure. Like, I think there's been some successes. But as you mentioned, there's also been some duds. Like, I, I think that was always how it was going to go. And so I would say it's kind of sort of meeting expectations on, on that basis. It was a, an interesting comment from Sean Murray when he was talking to Gavin after the KI game, when he said that the form that he's enjoying now is pretty much due to him being pain-free for the first time since he joined the club. So once again, I suppose we, we can't underestimate just how serious um, fitness and injuries can be to some players of a relatively young age and you know it is admirable that Sean has struggled through that pain barrier and it's great to see him now showing what he can do and enjoying his football again. This podcast uh, we're back in one of the foreign legion and we've uh, decided to chip in and sponsor Stefan Kolovic for the European campaign and once again this is a player with an abundance of skill he probably has yet to show us fully what he's capable of given the stop-start nature of the season and that betting in period but uh, Stefan is our man for the upcoming campaign will you be expecting him to make an impact? Uh, well, sometimes it could be the, the, the kiss of death to a player um, uh, if, if we end up backing them um, but uh, we won't talk about our previous history on this one but um no, I, I think uh, Shalovich definitely caught the eye from the very start. And yeah, it's been stop-start and maybe he hasn't got, but I think you can see the quality uh, is definitely there. So um, uh, hopefully, I think it's more about a, a run of games and maybe cementing himself into a position. But uh, I, I think we've seen enough to know that he, he's definitely not in the dud pile anyway. But now that we've sponsored him, uh, he's probably destined for that. I think he's one of those players who will really benefit from us not facing a selection of teams who are defending like super deep in their own box. I think against KI in particular, I think when they looked like they were prepared to attack a little bit more, we got him away down the right a few times. He looked very dangerous, good balls into the box. And, you know, when he got the ball out of his feet and actually running at people, 
like very, very dangerous. So I'm kind of hopeful that in the European campaign in particular, that uh, I guess between himself and with our monumental backing, uh, he'll be making a huge difference on the pitch and uh, getting goals and assists. Well, a busy weekend ahead for Dundalk FC, a crucial game against two of our rivals for that European spot. Uh, hopefully we'll be getting the two victories and that would set us up nicely for our European adventure to begin in a, in a relaxed and enjoyable fashion in Talaf Stadium against Molde on Thursday night. So we'll be talking again after we've had those games.